Would you open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12? 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, that's page 520 in the Pew Bibles provided. It is the uh, really uh, a, a well-known account, but it's something we're going to take a look at today. Um, I see there are not as many people that were here as last week. That reminds me of Billy Sunday. Uh, somebody came up to Billy Sunday one day. He's a famous preacher of the two generations back, and they said, uh, Billy, you're petting the cat the wrong way. He said when he was preaching, he was just upsetting people, and they said, you're petting the the cat the wrong way. And Billy Sunday said, we'll tell the cat to turn around. (laughs) So uh, if you don't like it, turn around. You know, sometimes people talk about preachers stepping on somebody's toes or whatever. Well, if you'd move your feet, it'd be fine, so... Nevertheless, we talked last week about the Great Commission. Two weeks ago, we concluded our series on the extraordinary, ordinary Christian life, or three weeks ago, I was gone two weeks ago, by talking about how an extraordinary, ordinary Christian makes disciples who makes disciples. The Christian life does not end with you. Now, last week, we looked at the Great Commission, and we saw that to make disciples, Jesus gives us a very simple instruction. He says, you go... You baptize them and you teach them to obey. You know, we have a responsibility as Christians to reach out to people, to bring the gospel to people. And if we don't do that, then Jesus says, ye are the salt of the earth. If the salt hath lost its savor, it is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. If we're not reaching people for the gospel, then I tell you by the authority of Jesus that we are good for nothing. That's pretty lousy. The illustration that I used last week, which I'll bring up again, is if I've got a light bulb and that light bulb does not shine, I am not going to keep it for a paperweight. That is a good-for-nothing light bulb. Christians have been given one job, and our one job has been to take the message of Jesus to people. And if we don't do that, what good are we? And if we were to do a poll, you know, the vast majority of Christians globally have never led a single person to Christ. Not globally, nationwide. I don't know about globally. The vast majority of Christians nationwide have never led a single person to Christ. Now that's the problem. And of course, I will once again remind you from three weeks back, if you had just a handful of people who got serious about reaching people for Christ, you could transform the world. You say, well, that's not true. What could a couple people do? Well, let's do it. If you had 10 people who each said, we are going to reach one person for Christ this year, and train them up, lead them to be baptized in obedience to what Jesus said, and then teach them to obey so they'll reach other people. The next year, you'd go from 10 to 20. Those 20 people, though, have been taught to obey, and so they're going to carry out the Great Commission. And so now you go from 20 to 40, 80, 160, 320, 640, 1280, 25, 60, 51, 20, 10,240. You could reach 10,000 people in 10 years if you start with 10. But what about after that? 20,000, 40,000, 80,000, 160,000, 320,000, 640,000, 1.2 million, 2.4 million, 4.8 million, 9.6 million. Let's call it 10 million because you picked up a couple extra on the way. 20 million, 40 million, 80 million, 160 million, 320 million. You could reach the population of the United States in 25 years by having... Each person reach one person, starting with just 10 people in 25 years. Now, that's pretty incredible. So 
So what happened? Well, somewhere along the way, we short-circuited the process, didn't we? We looked out and we said, well, you know, we've got other things to do. We need to have beautiful buildings. We need to have uh, technology. Boy, don't you love technology when the lyrics are wrong on the song and it turns off randomly and everything else. We've got to have all these other things. We've got to have ministries to these kind of people and this kind of people. and We've got to have activities for these kids and these kids and everything else. And all that stuff is wonderful. I love all of those things. But if we are not doing the one thing that Jesus told us to do, then we are a light bulb that doesn't shine. Henceforth, good for nothing. Now, so last week we talked very heavily about how important it is that we lead people to salvation, lead people to be baptized, and teach them to obey. But maybe you look at that and you say, I just don't know how. I just get so nervous. How am I supposed to talk to somebody about that? You know, and uh, you, maybe you're saying that now, uh, maybe you're hoping I'm going to give you a formula. You say, look, if you memorize this script, you won't be nervous. Well, good luck. That's not how that works, is it? I want you to imagine, I heard an illustration that really stuck with me. Are you to imagine you're standing on the ocean and it's icy. You know, you're standing up somewhere north and you're in this icy water and you know if you dive in, you're going to freeze. Are you going to jump in? Well, of course not. I'm not going to jump in. But now I tell you that there's a four-year-old child out there drowning. Suddenly you're willing to jump in, aren't you? <laughs> Let me tell you, the courage to witness is not by being less afraid, it is by loving more. There are people that are dying, and you don't do it because it's going to make you comfortable, you do it because you have no other choice. And if you believe that, then that'll spur you to action. You don't need to pray for God to make you less afraid. You need to pray for God to make you love more. Perfect love casts out fear. See, if I love that person so much, I don't care how I feel. Because I'm more concerned about them than I am about me. So here's the problem. We, as Christians, as a conservative Christians, have lost our love for people. And if we don't have love, what do we have? Jesus said, by your love will all men know that you are my disciples. If we don't have love, we don't have anything. And so it's no wonder that we're not doing the one thing that Jesus told us to do because we, don't, we are not the one thing Jesus told us to be. So, maybe, as you've been thinking about God's command in the Great Commission, as you've been thinking about the promise in Timothy about being disciples who make disciples, maybe God has started to spur your heart where you feel like, yes, I do want to be able to reach people, but I want to know how. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 12 picks up right after a story that I'm going to need to tell you to make this make sense. David was the king of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. Uh, maybe if you went to Sunday school, you know David killed Goliath. Maybe you know that after that, he grew up and he became the king. And as the king of Israel, he was a powerful, powerful man. God called him a man after his own heart. Nevertheless, David was not a perfect man. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David had been at home when all of the, at the time when the, his soldiers were out to war, the time when kings go out to war, David was at home in his palace. He had uh, let other people uh, do the fighting while he enjoyed the, the fruits of their labor. Now, of course, today we consider that perfectly normal, right? The, of course, the political leaders stay home while other people bleed and die for what they want. But back then, this was not a normal thing. And David is sitting on the roof of his palace, 
Of course, the, the, the king would sit on the roof because they didn't have air conditioning. And so he would sit up there to enjoy the breezes. And there would be other people that would be on the roofs of their houses with little fences around them to enjoy the breeze and go up there for different things. Now David's up there and he's looking out on his domain, admiring everything that's his. And he sees a woman bathing on the roof. And that catches his eye. And he calls for her. And he says, find out who that is. And his servant says, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your generals. And David says, bring her to me. Now, where's Uriah? Well, Uriah's off at war where David is supposed to be. And so, and using the cover of his power, or however he did it, we don't know, David takes Bathsheba and impregnates her. This is the man after God's own heart. He looked down. Bathsheba, uh, it was normal to bathe on the roof. I guess I should clarify, because nobody could see you because you were on the roof, except for the one person in the city who had a roof higher than yours. And David looks down and he sees. David calls for her and she gets pregnant and now David is in a bind. So what does David do? Well, he's got a plan. He's a smart man. He calls Uriah home. And he says, Uriah, you know, you've been fighting so hard. I want you to go home and spend some time with your wife. And Uriah leaves David's presence. And when David wakes up the next morning, one of his servants says, do you know Uriah didn't go home last night? He said, what do you mean Uriah didn't go home last night? He said, Uriah slept on the front door of the palace. And David called him and said, what are you doing? And Uriah said, I am not going to go and spend time with my wife while my men are out dying. He says, I'm going to stay here. You know, I'm not going to enjoy myself while they're suffering. And so he goes back to battle. And now David is in a real bind. <laughs> because now his plausible deniability, his hoping that Uriah was not a very good counter, was not going to work. He's got a pregnant woman and no explanation for it. So David, very crafty, sends a letter with Uriah that tells the, the, the head of the armed forces, Joab, to send Uriah to the hottest part of the battle and then have everybody else retreat so that Uriah will be killed. Problem solved. Now, as near as we can tell, Joab doesn't actually do that. But Uriah is killed in the course of battle along with some others. So Joab sends back a message and he says, tell the king that these people have died. And if the king is angry with you, tell him your servant Uriah the Hittite has died also. And he does. And David says, don't worry. The sword strikes one now and another then. You go back and you keep fighting. And now King David thinks, yippee, I have gotten off scot-free. He marries Bathsheba, and she has a son. He has successfully covered up his sin for months. And so he says, look at that, I've gotten by. At least nine months, <laughs> he's covered it up. We don't know how old the child was. Have you ever done something wrong and thought that you got by with it? 
but you know what the Bible says? You can be sure your sin will find you out. So today what we're going to study is Nathan, the prophet, coming and confronting David. Now David is already a believer. This is not a true conversion. But the way that Nathan approaches David, I think, is going to help us know how we can talk to somebody about the gospel. So what I want you to know first is that everybody that you come into contact with that needs the gospel, which is everybody, has got sin in their life already, right? You are not going up and finding the perfect person. There are no perfect people. There's none good, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? If you have never sinned, somebody sitting next to you has, okay? And somebody sitting next to them has too. So you're in a bind. Everybody sinned. And you know, sometimes we look at some people and we say, you know, that person, uh, there's no way that that person is ever going to come to Christ. Do you know the kind of stuff that they're involved in? You know, that person is, uh, has got so many problems. You don't want to get involved in that. Well, uh, David was a murdering adulterer. And yet God still sent somebody to him. There's nobody that is too filthy for God to reach. And so there's nobody too filthy for you to go to. And you say, well, I'm just, I'm nervous. You know, if I talk to that kind of person, what's going to happen? And again, I I tell you, if there's a child drowning, you don't care how cold the water is. It changes your perspective. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. You see, our background today is shoes come next to each other. Uh, Romans 10 says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the good news. See, you have got a message. God is sending you out the same way that God sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Now, let me give you a little bit of context. The king in these days oftentimes served as a judge for very difficult cases. And so it would be kind of normal for Nathan to come up to David and say, look, I've got this problem. Will you help me with this problem? So Nathan the prophet comes in and he says, there's there's these two men in this city. One's rich and the other's poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds and the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. He said, there's two shepherds. And he says, one of them's wealthy and he's got lots of sheep. The other one's a poor man and he's got one sheep and it's a pet. It eats at the family table. It sleeps with them at night. It's a pet. He treated it like his daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. It says this wealthy man in this city, David, he, he took, he left all of his own sheep alone and took his neighbor's pet and killed his neighbor and slaughtered it for his guest. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. David says, Look, I know that the law says that if you steal a sheep, you have to pay back four sheep, but this man should die for what he's done. David's angry. 
to give you how does Nathan approach David. He starts out with everyday life, you know. He doesn't uh, walk up to David, knock on the door and say, sit down, we need to have a talk. And I've got something very serious and spiritual to talk to you about. That's probably not going to be a very successful way to broach a conversation with somebody. The normal way that Nathan would come to David is with a problem. And so he comes and he starts a conversation with David. But then he uses this problem to make David's mind start working. And David is so angry. And then Nathan said to David, thou art the man. David hears this story about what somebody else has done, and he's furious. And then Nathan says, David, I'm talking about you. Do you know what it takes for somebody to be saved? Sometimes we really want to make it kind of sugar-coated, don't we? We want to go up to somebody and say, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true, but it's not true in the sense that people think. You know, God's wonderful plan for your life may be for you to die. We, we studied the life of, of uh, uh, William Borden, who decided, God called him to be a missionary. He was going to go to the Muslims in North China. And he went, he gave up his Borden milk fortune, <laughs> Borden real estate fortune, gave up everything, was disowned by his family, went to Egypt to study, uh, oh my goodness, Islam, uh, oh my goodness. Arabic. <laughs> he went to study Arabic and he died in Egypt of malaria and never went where he was supposed to go. Do you know that that was God's wonderful plan for William Borden's life? So when I start out telling somebody, you know, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, you sure ought to be fulfilled. Um, that's a little bit misleading, isn't it? If you could go back in time to September 10th, 2001, and you could stand in the World Trade Center towers, you couldn't change anything, but you could talk to those people. What would you say to them? Would you say, you know, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. You know, you sure could be fulfilled if you would just become a Christian. Why don't you come to church with me next week? And then hopefully after three weeks of kind of pep talks, eventually the pastor will get around to the Bible. And then, you know, that is not what you would say to somebody you knew was going to die tomorrow. You would say, you're going to have to face God. What are you going to say to him? See, Nathan does not start out with any kind of good news. He starts out with some very bad news. He says, David, do you recognize your sin? How do you feel about somebody else doing this? Now, do you realize that you are the man? Now, I told you we were going to be very practical today, and so I, you know, I, I apologize in advance that this is not going to be smooth and organized, kind of choppy. Uh, I try to give you some steps. What's the best way to do this? I believe the best way to do this and the way that I've found the most effective is to use the Ten Commandments. I do it all the time. You've been here. You've heard me do it. But you talk to somebody. Uh, let's say you've got a tract. I do not think tracts are very effective on their own. You know, that's a cop-out. You hand somebody a piece of paper, and it's, that's about as good as inviting somebody to church. That's wonderful, but it's not the point, okay? You walk up to somebody and you say, can I give you something? And they say, okay, what is it? You say, it's a gospel tract about Christianity. Do you believe there's an afterlife? You just suddenly were able to use a common, ordinary, everyday handing something over to start a conversation. And everybody's got an opinion, right? They say, no, I don't believe there's an afterlife. Or they say, yes, I do believe there's an afterlife. Either way, your next question's the same. So do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Here's one of the most 
insane things you'll ever experience. Millions of people who do not believe in an afterlife believe they're going to go to heaven when they die. And you just... Now is not your time to be smarter than them. Now is your time to talk to them, right? They say, do you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? They say, yes. Very rarely will you find somebody that says, no, I think I'm going to go to hell, right? If you do, I guess you're in a pretty good spot with that person. You say, you know, let's work on that. But most people think they're going to go to heaven. And you say, why are you going to go to heaven? They say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Aha! You know, nine out of ten people. American culture has made this so easy because everybody thinks they're a good person. And so everybody will say that. And when they say that, you are set up. You know, they've, they've laid the ball up on the tee for you. And you say, really? You know, would you mind if I just ask you a couple questions on that? You say, sure, yeah, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you go through the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. If you don't know the Ten Commandments, you should learn them. First commandment is uh, don't have any other gods before me. And you ask them, have you ever put anything in front of God? I said, well, I guess. Okay, that's idolatry. What do you call someone who commits idolatry? And they say, well, an idolater. Huh, okay. You go down some more, you know, and you just skip around or whatever, but... Fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Have you ever dishonored your father and your mother? I guess, I guess sometimes. Oh, so what do you call somebody that disobeys? Disobedient? Oh, okay. The sixth commandment, don't kill. Have you ever killed anybody? Say, ha, woo, <laughs> No, sir, I have not. I said, oh, but you know, Jesus says that if you've hated somebody, you've already killed them in your heart. You know, God doesn't give you credit for what you didn't get a chance to do. God knows what you wanted to do. He knows that if you could have hurt that person without any consequences, you would have. So have you ever hated anybody? Well, okay, so what do you call somebody who murders? A murderer? Next commandment, don't commit adultery. Have you ever committed adultery? You know, Jesus says if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. God doesn't give you credit for the fact that you didn't get a chance to go out with that movie star, right? He says, you would have committed adultery. That adultery was in your heart. So what do you call somebody who commits adultery? An adulterer. And they say at this point, I see where you're going. You say, well, let's just finish. We're almost done. He says, don't steal. Have you ever stolen anything, even something small? What do you call someone who steals? And they say, a stealer. You say, well, a thief. That's close enough. They say, don't lie. Have you ever told a lie? Liar. Do you know the Bible says that all liars are cast into the lake of fire in Revelation? Don't covet. Have you ever looked at something with greed? And now you say to them, so by your own admission, you are an idolatrous, murdering, adulterous, thieving, disobedient liar. Does that sound like a very good person to you? Isn't it amazing how powerful the Word of God is? See, right now, you expose yourself, right? I don't need to tell you you're a bad person. Nathan didn't need to tell David it was wrong to take from somebody else, to take the love that somebody else had when you could have whatever you wanted. He knew that. He was angry. All Nathan had to do was guide David into realizing he was the man. 
So when you're talking to somebody, you see, you, you say, well, I don't even know how to start the conversation. You see how easy it would be to, to just say, you know, do you consider yourself a good person? You've got a friend, you know, you've got a family member, you've got whatever. You say, Mom, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? So, well, I hope I go to heaven. I hope. Do you know, the, the Bible says you can know. You know, so if you had to stand before God, what would you say? You say, well, you know, I tried to be pretty good. I always believed there was a God. Let's see, are, are you a good person? And now suddenly, see, it's not your job to convict people, right? It's not my job to make you feel bad. Um, when I was in high school, I was in debate and uh, things like that. And uh, I, by leveraging speaking skill, I don't know how else to say that, I'm a good speaker, and I could, even if the other person had a stronger case than me, oftentimes get them befuddled and get them to agree with me in the cross-examination, win the debate, even though I should have lost. I also thought it was like the kill shot to get them to cry, right? I didn't really... I did have some people cry. Now, do you know what that means? That means that by emotional manipulation or whatever, you can get people to feel different things, right? Now, do you think that God is impressed if I come and yell at you and stomp my feet and slap the pulpit and convince you into feeling something? No. Because whatever I can get you to feel, somebody else can get you to not feel, right? So you say, well, I'm just not that good of a speaker. Well, that's fine. I'm not asking you to be a good speaker. God's not asking you to be a good speaker because that can get in the way. God's asking you to open up the Bible and let the Bible shine. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, I know some people who preach extremely clever sermons and their sermons are so clever that it's like a frame that's bigger than the painting. It's like, you know, what, what are you trying to do here? You say, yeah, you know, some sermons, you look at the end of the sermon and you say, wow, I've never seen that in that text before because it wasn't there. You know, some people are very good at astroturfing sermons. A good sermon, what does it do? It opens up the Bible and shows you what's there. A good witnessing encounter does not pile a bunch of arguments on somebody. It just says, what's there? Now, what does that do? That gives you an out. Because everybody's got questions, and you know the answers to some of those questions, and some of those questions you don't know the answer to. But do you know what this technique that we've just used avoids? It avoids your mind. And I say that, and you say, well, that sounds, you're brainwashing people. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, I'm not trying to argue with you. Do you know that we know there's a God because of the shape of the, you know, plant cell? No, that's not, that's not what I'm doing. I'm skipping that kind of argument, and I'm appealing straight to your conscience. I can answer those arguments, you know, if you want to talk about that kind of stuff, I can do that. But do you know, making somebody smarter does not make them saved, right? I can convince you to believe a lot of things. You can know a lot of things about God without knowing God. So where do we go instead? We go to your conscience. We let the voice of God imprinted in the image of God on your heart expose you. The Bible says in the book of Romans, your conscience alternately defends or accuses you, right? So my goal when I'm witnessing to somebody is not to convince them about the flood or about the creation or about anything else. My goal is to make them see, wow, I'm a sinner standing before a holy God. And that's your job too. You don't have to be super qualified to do that. You can memorize the Ten Commandments. 
Or you can write them down. I don't care. Write them down. Put them in your wallet and say, you know, I've got the Ten Commandments here on a little business card in my wallet. Can we just go down this list and see how you're doing? And you've heard me say also, Colleen gets sick of this, when we went to the conference, pastor's conference a couple weeks ago, she said uh, that the, the lady that was leading the pastor's wife's luncheon said, you know, sometimes it was difficult to be a pastor's wife. You had to close your eyes and close your ears about different things, and you had to listen to the same joke 15 times. And I said, I'm insulted. I don't know what she's talking about. Listen to the same joke 15 times. But she said, Colleen said she wanted to raise her hand and say, or listen to that illustration about a policeman not pulling you over for doing a good job. I said, well, anyway. You've all heard it before, but you're going to hear it again. When somebody says to you, well, you know, yeah, I've done those things that are wrong, but I do most of the time. I do the right things. Just ask them, would you try that with a traffic court judge? You know. You got pulled over for going 95 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone. What's your defense? You say, well, sir, your honor, most of the time I go the speed limit. So I'm really a pretty good driver. You know, shouldn't my good driving outweigh my bad driving? They say, no, that's not how it works. You're on trial for what you did wrong, not for what you did right. So when somebody stands before God, they don't get to say, I usually didn't commit adultery. You're not on trial for the time that you didn't. You're not on trial for all the people you didn't kill. I always think that's funny, too. You know, driving down 45, I get in a fit of road rage, and I murder someone. And the judge calls me and says, what's your defense, sir? And I say, well, I was driving on 45. You should have seen all the people I didn't kill. Most of the things that I do, I do good. That's not how justice works, is it? You say, you're guilty. You stand before God. What do you say? David, you are the man. You start with just an ordinary, everyday, concrete thing. Move it into a consciousness of sin. And when it moves into a consciousness of sin, what do we get? He says, you know, and you can even do what Nathan did here, where he exposes the consequence. You know, what do you think God should do to a lying, murdering, thieving, disobedient adulterer? Murderer. And then somebody's conscience is kind of pricked, right? So what do you do from here? Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, my master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. David, God's, well, Nathan says, David, God says... He gave you the throne. He gave you everything you could possibly want. And if that wouldn't have been enough, he would have given you more. You talk to somebody and you say, look, you've sinned. But who gave you the mouth that you lie with? Who gave you the hands that you stole with? Who gave you the mind that you lusted and hated with? God gave you all these good things and you spoiled them. So God's got every right to be as angry with you as you would have been with that person who would have killed that lamb. He says in verse 9, Wherefore thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. So what's your excuse? Why have you hated God to do this evil thing? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. He says, David, because of your sin, 
the sword, the wrath of God will never leave your house because you've hated me. Do you know when you sin, you're not just sinning against other people. You're sinning against God. Sinning is hatred of God. You say, well, how's that the case? It's treason. God's the king and you're a traitor. And I'm a traitor. So again, we start out, just look for an opportunity, an ordinary conversation. When when Jesus witnessed the woman at the well, he started out by talking about the well. And then it comes to a consciousness of sin. And then you move to look at all God's done. And now look at what the punishment for sin is. Now, Nathan clearly had never read How to Win Friends and Influence People. He is putting a lot of negative things in a row. There's no compliment sandwich. There's no, you know, David, you're a really nice guy, but then you committed adultery and murdered this person. But boy, you know, your leadership skills are just great. He just lays out sin, doesn't he? He just exposes it. Watch David's reaction. Oh, well, I'm not quite ready yet. Sorry. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. says, David, here's your punishment. You stole Uriah's wife. You murdered Uriah. I'm going to let your enemies plunder your kingdom, and they are going to do publicly what you snuck around doing. They're going to take your life, take your family. Do you know that your sins that you think are secret will not stay secret? Do you know that the things you think you can cover up, even if you make it through your whole life, eventually you have to stand before God and give an account of everything you've ever said or done? Can you imagine? You know, you probably realize that if people knew everything about you, they wouldn't like you very much. God knows not just everything you've done. He knows every thought that you've ever had. He knows every urge you've ever had. He knows everything about you. And on the last day, if you're not saved, what happens? It says, I saw him from whose face the heavens and the earth fled. And God exposes everything. And you stand before God and God says, okay, here's your life. How do you plea? And at this point, now that we've gone through the Ten Commandments, I bet even in your heart right now, you're saying guilty, guilty, guilty. I plead guilty. There's nothing else I can say, is there? What else could I say? I'm guilty. And so David here is faced. And now, what can David say? Can he say, you know, God, that's not fair. I don't deserve to be exposed. But he knows better because he had already been willing to kill this man for killing the lamb. You know better because you know that if the things that you've done to other people were done to you, you would be furious. So here's my question for you. Here's the question that I think you ought to give to people. When you stand before God at the judgment, what will you say when all the things you've done in secret come out in the light? See, we as human beings are like cockroaches. Have you ever flipped on the light switch and watched the cockroach, or watch a cockroach run? Because it hates the light. We hate the light. We don't want the things that we've done to come out. We don't want truth. You say, well, you know, all I care about is the truth. Well, that's not true. You've got dark secrets of your heart you hope never come out. So when you stand before God and all that is exposed 
and all of the, well, you know, my parents uh, should have hugged me more, and my spouse should have done this, and my friends should have done this, and my boss should have done this, and all those excuses sure look awfully flimsy in the light of day, don't they? And ultimately, God says, here's the life I gave you. What did you do with it? And you say, I'm guilty. And God says, well, if you're guilty, I certainly cannot let you into my heaven. If God let lying, murdering, thieving adulterers into heaven, it wouldn't be heaven anymore at the very least. And so in God's justice, he says, I punish you for your sin. And here it gets even worse, doesn't it? When you sin against an infinite God, it's like dropping a pebble in the ocean. If I drop a pebble in a cup, how big are the ripples? As big as the cup. If I drop a pebble in a bathtub, how big are the ripples? As big as a bathtub. If I drop a pebble in the ocean, the ripples are as big as the ocean. Your sin has got consequences you don't know anything about. The things that you've done wrong now will continue to ripple out through time, even after you're dead. The people you've hurt, you've heard the story, there's a man who was uh, having a, a bad day at work, and uh, so he snapped at one of his employees. His employee was driving home and was angry, so they cut somebody off. That person uh, who cut somebody off came home and snapped at uh, her husband. Her husband snapped at the kid, and the kid kicked the dog. Wouldn't it have saved a lot of time if the boss had just kicked the dog himself? You know, gone over there. Your sin causes ripples that stretch out. So when you look at that, you say, well, it was just a little thing. Oh, no, it's not. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against everything. And so your punishment is more than you can bear. You know, it was only the infinite God who could bear your, your punishment in a finite amount of time. For me, I would bear the weight of my sin in hell forever because I would never be able to pay off what I've done against an infinitely perfect God. So what do you say before God? Are you going to say, you know, I don't deserve this? No, you're not. Not when your life is exposed. You know when you hear the Ten Commandments, you know that when you stand before God, you will have no defense. You were caught red-handed. So what do you say? He says, God, why? He says, why have you hated me? And I, I, I want to mention that too. He says, you have despised me. I want you to know that when you're witnessing to somebody, their biggest problem is not that they're in this uh, illicit sexual relationship. Their biggest problem is not that they're a thief. Their biggest problem is not this or that. Or that. Their biggest problem is that they hate God, right? You say, well, I don't hate God. Yes, you do. As a human being born in sin, you are naturally a rebel against God. You say, don't tell me what to do. I hate anybody who tells me what to do. Your problem is that you hate God. And so, you see, everybody's got the same problem, so everybody's got the same solution. Look at this. Look at this. Don't miss it. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You have to do two things to be saved. You have to repent and believe. By repent, I don't mean clean up your act. I mean turn from your sin and turn to God. You cannot repent without believing. You can't believe without repenting. Because God's this way and sin is this way. And you cannot face two directions at once. I can't turn to God while I'm still trying to do what I want to do. You met people like that, don't you? Double-minded people that try to do both things. But God says, look, you've been going this way. You've been a rebel against me. I just want you to admit it. God says, all I'm asking is for you to admit that you've betrayed me and turn back and trust me. 
See, I don't care about what you've done. I don't care about who you are. God says, look, if you choose to quit hating me, to lay down your arms and say, God, I've been a traitor. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? He says, that's what I want. We'll add a little bit more to that, but we're very close. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. David says, I'm sorry. And God says, I've taken your sin away. Do you know that no matter what you've done, you can have forgiveness. You can have peace with God. Right now, you're not at peace with God, right? If I have uh, just robbed a bank and the back seat of my car is full of stolen money, I've got no peace with the police. If I'm a sinner and I know that the moment I die, I'm going to be exposed with everything that I've done, I've got no peace with God. I go around afraid all the time like a cockroach looking for the shadows. And you may walk around and everybody else may think that you're good, but you're still hiding from God. If you're afraid to die, you're afraid to face God. You say, I don't know what's going to happen. What's God asking for? He's asking for you to admit that and trust him to put away your sin. Do you know how God puts away your sin? Jesus came, God, became a man and died in your place. He said, somebody's going to be punished, but somebody else paid the fine. So you deserved, you owed an infinite debt that you could never pay, but Jesus could pay it. Let me give it to you this way. If I were to loan uh, Silas $20, I said, Silas, here's this $20. I want you to hold on to this. And Silas perks up. All right, deal. But Silas, do you have a job? No. Oh, man. Silas, how are you going to pay this back? You can't, can you? So if I loan this money to Silas, and he can't pay me back. And I say, you know what, Silas, I love you. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Did that $20 reappear in my wallet? Whoa, that's amazing. No. Who paid that $20? I did. When you owe an infinite sin debt against God, who has to pay that sin debt for him to forgive you? God does. Jesus came, never lived, never sinned, never did anything wrong, lived a perfect life, and died a complete death. I want you to imagine on the cross, Jesus, stretched out, suffocating, and that's not that bad for him. Because then he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the answer to that question? Why hast thou forsaken me? Well, it wasn't because of anything Jesus did wrong. It was because Jesus was an outcast instead of us. That God treated Jesus like us so that he could treat us like Jesus. So you can't handle it yourself. And that's the biggest part. This is the thing, I believe, that keeps most people from being saved. You realize at this point in me talking to you that you're a sinner. You realize that you need a solution. You realize doing good things is never going to cancel it out. And Christianity is the only thing that offers another option. But what you don't want to say is, I can't do it by myself. You want to keep on trying. Because you've got so much pride. And I've got so much pride that the one thing I don't want to do is come on my knees and say, I can't, I can't, I can't. How many times in stupid, ordinary, everyday life have you messed something up because you didn't want to ask for help? Dumb things. You know. The other day, I was, we were, Brother Don and I were walking through Lowe's 
and uh, looking for a wheelbarrow. And I just kept walking. I was like, it's got to be here somewhere. And he stopped and he said, where's the wheelbarrows? And they said, go through the double doors on your left. I could have saved myself a lot of trouble if I had the humility to ask for help. But when you come to God and you say, God, my life is not my own, I lay it down. That's the hardest decision you've ever got to make. And so when you come and you talk to somebody about being saved, you need to realize that you are asking them to die. You're asking them to lay down their life and give it to God. That's a tremendous thing. And you know no human being will ever choose to do that on their own. Only when the Spirit of God convicts them. So in that moment, you're witnessing to them. Here's this amazing thing. The Bible says, Jesus says, No man can come unto me except my Father draw him. So God's Spirit is convicting them on the inside. You are the Holy Spirit working through you is talking to them on the outside. They are convicted of their sin, and then they're given a choice. And if they reject Christ at that point, you need to remember what we read in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the one who sent you. So there's no fear. There's no personal devastation. It's just saying, Lord, I know that this person needs you. And I'm going to do everything I can to reach them. But if they reject me, I'm not going to take it personally because I'm asking them to give themselves up. This is all easier said than done, you understand. So if you're going to witness to somebody, it's very simple. You go to them, you take the ordinary course of conversation, and you get them thinking about sin. And then you ask them, you know, do you think you're a good person? You go through the Ten Commandments, and you let their own words expose them. And then, when their own words are exposed... And they've confessed their guilt before God. You say, the Lord will put away your sin if you'll just trust in Jesus. Are you willing to say, Lord, I give up my sin and I trust Jesus? You can do that. See, the, the, this, this plan of how to witness, you know, you're like, it took you 45 minutes, Justin. It ought to be more complicated than this. So I apologize. It's so simple. You bring the law and then you bring the gospel. It's the same thing Jesus did. He used the... Uh, law as a schoolmaster to bring people to faith, to expose your guilt. And then once your guilt is exposed, you are left with a very simple choice. Maybe some of you here today have been uh, superficial Christians. You, know, you've, you've, you believe there's a God, but you've never actually turned from your sin and trusted in him. If that's the case, then I give you the same test that I just said. What do you do? You understand it? In verse 14, Howbeit, because this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born unto thee shall surely die. This baby that got sick still died. Now the baby went to heaven. You know the Bible. He says that I will not go to him. I, he, he will not return to me, but I'll go to him. This baby went to heaven. But do you know there are still consequences of your sin? If you stole something and you ask God for forgiveness, you've still got to pay it back. If you are in an illicit relationship, you ask God for forgiveness, you've still got to break it off and make it right. If you have been hating in your heart, you ask God for forgiveness, you've still got to release that other person from your hatred. There's still consequences to your actions, but there's not an eternal consequence because you can have peace with God. 
Some of you here today, I am willing to bet, do not have any peace in your life. You don't have any peace. And the more, you know, you try not to think about death. You try not to think about sin. You try not to think about judgment. Because when you think about it, you think, well, I just don't know. Have you ever, um, a small, small confession here, sometimes I don't want to check. I don't want to balance my checkbook, right? I don't want to check my bank balance. I just see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. That's how you end up with negative $2 in your account, right? Sometimes you look at the situation and you say, I just don't want to know about that. But do you know that does not change your bank balance? You know, that does not, when you say, I'm just not going to think about dying, that does not change the fact that you're going to die. You say, well, I'm very healthy. I'm not going to die right now. (laughs) That's a very bold statement to make, isn't it? You don't know what's going to happen to you. So right now, if somebody came in here, came in that back door and shot us all down, would you be in hell before you hit the ground? Or would you be in heaven? So you say, well, you know, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to deal with this later. Now, here's the question. Right now, I told you no man can come unto me except my father draw him. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you right now, I don't have any promise for you that God's going to do it again. I don't have any promise for you that you're going to get another chance. This may be your last chance to make a decision for Christ and the Spirit and the bride say, come. If you have never given your heart to Jesus, you know that you're a sinner. You know that you deserve God's judgment. You know your only hope is for God to put away your sin. And you know the only way he did that is through the death of Jesus. Are you willing today to come down and say, Lord, I give my heart to you. I'm sorry for my sin. I believe you died for me. Maybe you are a Christian and you have not been sharing that message. Are you willing to say, Lord, I want to pray for you to give me divine opportunities. This week, I am going to make it a point to pass your word along. The sin in my life that serves as a stumbling block, the things that I say, the things that I do, you know, you say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to just say what I think. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. If you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, you are not your own. Right? There are things in your life that people can use as leverage. They say, well, I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to become a Christian. You know, I've heard the way you talk. I don't take you seriously. There are things that can get in your way of being an instrument fit for the master's use. That's what 1 Timothy says. So are you willing to, as a Christian today, say, Lord, I lay my sin down because this mission is too important to do anything else. You're willing to pray for God to convict those people in your life and give you those opportunities. Let's stand together as the musicians come forward.